three, two, one. This episode of Working Lunch is fueled by Melting Pot. Mr. Coley, you had a recent visit to the Melting Pot to celebrate your uh, anniversary. What was on the menu? Seventh anniversary. Seven years of bliss, Joe. Kind of like seven years in Tibet, to throw back to one of your favorites. You know, Dawn has had a hankering to go to Melting Pot for a while, and the anniversary was coming up, and so it just kind of kind of combined. It was great, man. We did the, uh, whatever, the the two-person big package. I can't remember, but it's, uh, you know, it's the cheese fondue with Wisconsin cheddar. You know, the big package has uh, lobster included and filet mignon. It was, it was freaking phenomenal, I have to say. The other little nice touch is they had a photo booth in the back. And so, you know, we told them we were there for anniversary. I assume they do this for all sorts of occasions. They take you back to this little photo booth and you get like the high school prom, like in the photo booth kind of photos. And the manager and the staff hand drew out a little happy anniversary card. I mean, it was like white glove service, my friend. Highly recommended. Check out Melting Pot. Probably haven't been there and since your prom date you know, in, in, in the eighties, but it's, it's worth a trip. That sounds delicious. It has been a while since I've been in the melting pot, but uh, they've got a, a sneaky good dessert menu too. You know how I like the sweet tooth, but uh, sneaky good dessert menu. So good experience. Good shout out our friends, in the melting pot. And on that happy note, let's do the show. May I help you? We need to talk about your flair. I think I'm going to have to go super side. I'm proud to be a bartender. Ain't nothing wrong with that. Mr. Vice President speaking. Come on, man. With all due respect, that's a bunch of malarkey. From the home office of Align Public Strategies in downtown Orlando, Florida, this is Working Lunch coming up on the podcast. A new survey out this week by the Society for Human Resource Management finds that the workplace is becoming more politically polarized, leading to altercations and hostile work environments. We discuss what this means for employers as well as for corporate decision making. And the Supreme Court has convened its new term, and the docket is full of cases with important implications for employers in general and the restaurant industry in particular. We'll discuss the year ahead for the court. We'll discuss those issues and wrap it up with a legislative scorecard. Well, this week, uh, or last week, I should say, the Washington Post ran an interesting article based on some findings from a study by the Society for Human Resource Management. All employers know, all employers know SHRM. Great uh, prestigious organization do, does a lot of great work. But Mr. Coe, they did a study about polarization, political polarization in the workplace and how workplaces themselves are becoming a little more volatile. It's a little getting tougher to avoid the blue-red game in the workplace. And there's kind of less diversity of perspectives within organizations they're finding. You tend to either work for a company that has overwhelming majority of blue employees or an overwhelming majority of red employees. I know you took a look at that study. It was interesting. What were your kind of key takeaways from that data? This is one of the more interesting studies I've seen in a while. I, you know, we talk about this a lot. Um, we've talked about this in the context of the Starbucks campaign. We've talked about this in the context of navigating political issues, but you know, there, there's in, in the way the Sherm study kind of characterizes this is escalating political tensions in the workplace. So one in four workers, 26%, say they've personally experienced differential treatment. So, you know, been treated positively or negatively because of their political views or affiliation in the workplace. That That's kind of crazy that, that you know, this is 
permeated so many aspects of our life now that it's actually impacting the workplace. And so there's a bunch of different lens to look at this through. But as we know, Americans have become more well-sorted over the past few years. And so, you know, in, in kind of more tribal, for lack of a better term, in, in terms of political identification and uh, partisan ID. Um, it's become more like kind of teams. And the teams are, there's not a lot of crossover in issues. They're very well sorted. And so that makes it kind of volatile, these interactions. And to have that in the workplace is a potentially really troublesome dynamic. And it manifests itself in a bunch of different ways. We can talk about Starbucks, we can talk about Disney and the pressures that Disney felt internally with its workers as it kind of navigated the don't say gay issue down in Florida. We can talk about it in, in a number of different ways, but it's going to manifest itself in a, in a bunch of different ways that are going to create opportunities, but also kind of pitfalls for companies. Yeah. You know, when, when I, I remember when I worked at Walmart, there was a really good uh, diversity of opinion among, you know, that the teams that I worked most directly with and, you know, senior managers up the, up the pipeline. And, you know, at the time, of course, I'm dating myself but at the time it was, you know, that state was going through a political transition state of Arkansas. I'm referring where it was a, been a, been a quote unquote blue state for 50 years, turning to a red state conversations were more prevalent about that, you know, during that transition. And it was a good balance where, you know, open dialogue was appreciated. I think to your point through all segments of society, open dialogue is getting less and less appreciated and people are not respecting each other's views. I think people are becoming too militant with their views, lording them over others that, you know, I'm either more superior or smarter than you because I think this way and you think that way. And I, I think it's becoming a, a, a real problem getting team cohesion uh, throughout divisions of companies. I, could, I, I would, it'd be very difficult if I were still back in corporate America, how I would navigate that. And I think you're primarily talking to 100% agree. And, and I think you're probably talking to mainly like at the C-suite level, like conversations around, whereas, you know, if you think down to the kind of entry level worker level and the frontline employee level, um, I think historically, like politics played much, I, I mean, is probably there and probably there in some small like family owned, but in big enterprises, you know, you didn't have political conversations at the frontline kind of level that were impacting kind of workplace environments, right? Not, not at this level. I, I think that's what the Sherm study kind of got to. And I do think that that in the... Looking at one, it, looking at Starbucks in particular, when you've got, you know, let's call it eight out of 10 workers that are, I'm just making that up, that number, but eight out of 10 of their workers. So, you know, whatever, let's call it 20 or 25 of the 30 employees in a Starbucks unit are well sorted to the, the left side of the aisle and have unanimous agreement around a certain political issue set and are getting more political in the workplace. Right. And are working. And we see this. We saw this in Buffalo and in, in Boston where, you know, these workers were working on um, India Walton's campaign and where, you know, there was political organizing that was taking place. 
that that coming back into the workplace, those conversations around worker empowerment and other issues coming back into the workplace, that creates a different environment, I think, than, you know, 15 years ago when this political conversation stayed kind of out of the, the workplace. And, you know, if you're, a, if you're a MAGA Republican, you know, it's probably not super comfortable working in Starbucks work environment and vice versa. I think there's, there's also brands that are probably taking advantage of this dynamic in, in some ways. And anyway, it's super interesting it, for the brands that are just trying to sell chicken or sell hamburgers or sell, you know, it, this is a tough environment to operate in. There, it, it's fraught with kind of issues. A lot of these political issues can come workplace issues and become protected concerted activity. And there's just a lot of stuff to think through and navigate here. And this, I, I hope that Sherm does this as like an annual study because it'll be interesting to follow kind of the, the, the through line of this over some, some years. Well, I think, I think there are two challenges that happens, you know, in, in institutional groupthink is that when you get kind of less diverse in your thoughts, I think you're more likely to make poor business decisions uh, when, when you haven't vetted all these possibilities. And I think oftentimes, and I think it's growing, the, the political viewpoint of the CEO or the C-suite becomes the political viewpoint of the company. And sometimes what might be best for, you know, the country is not best for your company, or it might be best for your company is not best for the country. I think a lot of senior leaders juxtapose the two being one and the same. If it's best for my company and best for me, then it's best for the country. And I think it's harder and harder for, you know, people in our world, public affairs people to have to speak truth to power sometimes and say, look, that, that's just not the way it is out there. This is not a smart play. And, I, and, and if you lose that space for, your external professionals to be able to have that conversation, you're, you're really shooting yourself in the foot as a corporate entity, in my opinion. Well, Mr. Coley, last week we saw an annual tradition in Washington known as the first Monday in October, the annual day the Supreme Court convenes for their new term. I remember as a kid in the early 80s, there was a movie, Walter Matthau and Jill Claver called First Monday in October, and it was talking as a she plays the first female uh, associate justice on the Supreme Court, a la Sandra Day O'Connor. As a young junior high schooler, high schooler, I learned a lot about the Supreme Court in that movie. But the real first Monday in October happened this past week, and there are a lot of things on the Supreme Court's docket that they will be discussing uh, in calendar year 2022 2023 that really affect businesses, industries, business models. Uh, there's a, a quite a long list that seems more so than normal, Franklin. It's, it's obviously got the usual amount of social issues and immigration and all the other tax and all the other things the Supreme Court routinely talks about, but a lot of core business model issues in this particular term that employers should note. You have the floor to identify the three or four most, uh, most interesting. Wow. Okay. And uh, I think these cases are interesting because they impact the business, but um, they're also potentially going to lead to political disruption as the Supreme Court potentially kicks over the apple cart. We're going to have state level action, potentially even federal, I guess, but I own these issues. So, you know, the, the big thing from last Supreme Court session, and they'll be, you know, ruling on these in, in the summer, right? Starting in June. Is that right? Am I getting the calendar right? And then, uh, 
the, the, the big issue from last session was the EPA decision. And that was the major questions doctrine was at issue there. And essentially what the major questions doctrine is, is looking for federal overreach from federal agencies. I expect we're going to see a lot more of that. Um, and so that's going to come in all shapes, forms, and sizes. This Supreme Court has demonstrated that they are going to lean into some issues that the Supreme Court has let lay for uh, many decades. So we're going to probably get some curveballs and see issues come up. They're going to have implications. The way the opinions are going to be written, they're probably going to be broadly written, and there's, there's going to be things that come up we're not even anticipating. But, Joe, the big one the industry is looking at, this is where I hand the mic back to you, is pork, my friend. Tell us about the uh, the U.S. Supreme Court pork case, kind of where that sits and how it's postured and what the potential impact will be. Well, we've had this 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 issue pop up in a number of states most recently, Massachusetts, but there's a challenge uh, that will happen this week regarding a California law uh, that forbids the sale of most pork in the state unless it comes from a it was born to a sow that was had certain housing requirements, 24 square feet, blah, 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 blah. And you talk about disruption to the entire national supply chain. This case in California, the one, similar one in Massachusetts pending right now, really could change everything. Now, the National Pork Producers Council, I think it's called, is the, uh, the plaintiff that's trying to undo the California law, which I don't think Franklin has even taken effect yet, has it? I don't think it's even in no, it's stayed and, and the Massachusetts law was stay. All these laws have been stayed while the Supreme Court. Yeah. By the, while the courts have considered this issue. And, and to your point, it's California saying you can't bring pork into our state if it was raised elsewhere and did not meet these California criterion. And so at issue is the interstate commerce clause. Can California essentially dictate to producers in other states how they have to raise their pork. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, this is this is huge, right? This is the big one. Uh, and I think to your point, you know, you, you were making the broader point. You know, this is the ability of, you know, the Interstate Commerce Commission to, 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 to regulate this one way or the other. But on the agenda broader is, you know, depending on your point of view, you know, we, we could we could at the end of the next year or two have a fundamental different relationship with the federal government is ability to regulate you fill in the blank drinking water you know clean air uh whatever it is not so much going after the merits of individual laws themselves but the agency's the agency's constitutional uh right in regulating itself and regulating in, in amongst itself so it's this is some fundamental cases that affect everyday business issues that will go to the heart of whether OSHA can inspect your workplace, whether the EPA can inspect your drinking, whether the SEC can look at your financial reports. It's, it's, it's a pretty broad agenda they've got. Yeah. in the pork, 100%. And the pork issue, they may address narrowly, they may address more broadly. You know, it's hard to say, but even if they just address it within the pork industry itself, it is going to have dramatic impacts for food retailers, restaurants, retailers, otherwise. And so, and I can't imagine at a minimum that that won't include some other animal husbandry type rules, right? And how far reaching beyond that is, you know, remains to be seen, but this would be a big deal. So a big deal for the industry. 
The other one, Joe, that jumped out at me, and you know, this is in the education space, and so it's not clear, you know, how it may impact the employer community. But there's there's a couple of affirmative action cases that are kind of bundled together. One related to Harvard, one to the greatest university on the face of the planet, the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And these cases are basically uh, focused on kind of racial quotas and that sort of thing. You, you could see potentially where, you know, California's done stuff and other states have done stuff on, you know, uh, racial quotas for board seats or gender quotas for board seats on companies, right? So, you know, potentially might some ruling or, you know, the Supreme Court could look at this and, and address it. Probably going to stick within the education space, but they may reinforce racial quotas in other, or they may indicate that where the court sits on racial quotas in other settings, like the corporate setting, and how they may view that and treat that. So that's that's one other one to kind of keep an keep an eye out for. Yeah, it's basically saying, you know, does 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 the government have a role? Do do you know public universities, or whatever, have any place in essentially regulating their population? Can they make choices based on racial racial preferences? And and if you set the standard that choices based on race and racial precedents, uh, racial preference are not you know allowable, then it's the next case up is about those same preferences in the employer community. So it, it will be a precedent setting case. To your point, unclear whether there's you know direct transferability to employers, but there's certainly indirect transferability. Uh, in the short term and probably in the long term as well. So it'll be interesting. It'll be an interesting uh, court year. I know general counsels all over the business community will be watching uh, intently uh, what's going on in Washington, D.C. And to your point earlier, Franklin, yes, it's in June, kind of the summer is when they start revealing those cases and handing down those decisions that their clerks have been working away on for months and months and months prior to those prior to those briefs being, uh, being made public. And um, so it's going to be an exciting year at the Supreme Court level, that's for sure. It's time for the Legislative Scorecard, where we go around the country and update you on the latest legislative and regulatory developments. And Frank, let's start with wages. Uh, City of Seattle, at it again. Yeah, their Labor Standards Office is uh, bumping up uh, the minimum wage there to $6.50 an hour, 75-cent raise. And that is for, I think, small employers and then 869 up from 1727. So it's kind of substantial. That's a buck uh, 42 raise for larger employers. The BICO zone. So what does that put us at, Joe? So that puts us at man, almost $19. If you don't offer insurance, 19, almost 19 bucks. There's a you know bifurcated. There's bifurcated levels between large and small employers and bifurcated levels between employers that offer health care and, and don't and so forth. So, I mean, but it's it's a, it's a big number. Uh, the other big news out of Seattle this weekend, Franklin, is that they're evidently next up to get an NBA basketball team. They lost one 20 years ago to the Mem- now the Memphis Grizzlies. But Seattle, they get their Supersonics back. So big news. Are they, are they getting the name back too, Supersonics? I hope so. It's such a great name. I love their name. It is. I hope they do. I hope they do. Franklin National Labor Relations Board uh, shockingly restored an Obama-era standard regarding the collection of dues after a collective bargaining agreement has terminated 
and that kind of gap between the next one kicks in, employers still got to collect those dues or pay those dues. Yeah. I mean, one of a thousand little things that the federal agencies are doing to, you know, take care of the labor leaders, but yep. The, the dues collections cannot halt in between the negotiation of uh, a new bargain agreement uh, upon the expiration of an old. And speaking of the NLRB, they have, I think, uh, a giant pile of uh, labor complaints with our friends at Starbucks, speaking of Seattle again. But the first one of that pile was finally was settled. More to come, but the first one was settled. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, so the settlement, as as is typical, does not stipulate guilt or an admission of wrongdoing or anything like that. But um, this particular complaint focused on their New York City roastery, which is a larger location than, you know, a normal Starbucks. If I'm if memory serving correct, correctly is, you know, a couple hundred employees, right, versus 30 or something like that. So maybe like 150, but whatever, big location. So the the settlement requires quote, certain unwarranted disciplinary actions from employees' records, removing those so they no longer uh, are on the employees' records, and they post the notice of the unsettlement in the break room at the roastery for at least 60 days, basically saying that they can't retaliate against workers for engaging in organizing and any, you know, retaliatory actions will be removed from their records. So this is kind of a I don't want to say it's standard, but this is the type of this is the type of settlement agreement you will typically see during a labor organizing campaign. And in spite of the company coming to a settlement with the NLRB, the uh, foremost liberal members of the U.S. Senate still decided it was a good week to kick him in the teeth. Yep, and you know the House had their teeth kicking a couple of weeks ago. The Labor Committee, I think. And we've had the state level teeth kicking. So this week it was uh, Senators Warren Markey, Markey, Blumenthal, Sanders. They sent out a letter to the CEO. I think Schultz is still the CEO. I don't think it's the official baton passing has happened yet. But to the CEO and to the board, um, they want to know how much the company has spent on quote unquote kind of union busting. So they want to see all those dollars that have gone out to law firms and consultants and, you know, persuaders, whatever. And this is a typical kind of, first off, they're not going to get it probably. Yeah, I don't think Starbucks is going to bundle that up and, and send it over to them. But this is typical. The, the unions like to map this stuff out. And um, the persuader rule during the Obama era was intended towards this. So anyway, they ain't going to stop going after this info, uh, but, you know, it's a shot over the bow. These are some some influential senators that have big microphones. So, And, and under the auspices of why in the hell would you pick this date? The new CEO doesn't start until April 1st of 2023. Why would anyone take on a new job on April Fool's Day, Franklin? That's funny. Just cue, cue the jokes now. Last labor-related piece. Um Important company in the restaurant industry, Cisco, process of some labor unrest at a normal of uh, a number of their locations, mostly in the Northeast, some of their distribution centers and so forth. Uh, The first one taking place in one Syracuse, New York, the home of my youngest daughter currently. Franklin, if this and, and, you know, part two is it's no uh, shrinking violet union. It's the Teamsters. 
which I always have the most respect for. If uh, the Teamsters got a foothold into Cisco, that would have some downstream ramifications, I think, for restaurant restaurant companies, restaurant brands, restaurant owners. No? Potentially. That's always the dream is they um, they can pressure and leverage from all these different angles and restaurant brands. And certainly, you know, the supplier chain is is would be one of those. You know, if you could the teams here should go on strike and 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 cut off the supply lines to some of these restaurants. Well, that would be a uh, a forceful tactic. The labor community hasn't been able, particularly in the restaurant space, to really kind of execute at that level and for some time. They've tried that against the retailers, but the retailers, you know, often get from so many places and they have so much kind of in distribution centers that it's hard. But restaurants, it's not like they're sitting on a month of supply. So in some ways could potentially be a, a wielded more with with greater effect probably on, on restaurants and than the retail sector and we know firsthand what supply chain pinches can do um, post covid as well so interesting it, little development here and it's just another indication that frontline workers in the entry level employer space there's so much angst just another of a long list of examples of workers you know engaging in kind of collective action. Yeah. So while the legislative and regulatory beat has kind of uh, slowed to a trickle pre-election, the labor activism beat is still pedal to the metal on a lot of fronts, uh, our industry uh, right at the top of the list. So uh, we'll keep you updated on all of these developments going forward on next week's scorecard. Well, another week, another pod, uh, Franklin, as we close out this episode, following up on our conversation last week about kind of races to watch, you know, watching the polling numbers up and down. Nevada, is it Nevada or Nevada? Seems to be kind of the ground zero that could decide the U.S. Senate governor's race. I was uh, in Nevada last week and you couldn't move 10 seconds, uh, tell every TV there was just nothing but political ads. It was just complete saturation in Nevada. Um, what's your take on what's going on? Yeah. Uh, well, I, the piece basically says Nevada's more repub than you think. It's, it's basically the, was the kind of the gist of it. And, um, you know, it basically makes the argument like, look, if, if Dems secure this, uh, or repubs, excuse me, secure this, then it's basically a done deal. You, you know, that this is, this could be the one that matters, you know, they also two other things that were interesting about the article. They teased out how super competitive the governor's race is, too. And so that could be a broken blue trifecta as well. And I don't know that everyone's paying too close outside of Nevada, but paying too close attention to that race right now. But that could be a huge deal in terms of state level policymaking. The last part of the piece that jumped out to me is they characterized Florida as YOLO conservatism <laughs> dominated by YOLO conservatism, which I've never seen that, that term used before. And I'm going to use it all the time. Damn it, was that, I, damn, uh, does that mean damn the future? Who cares? You know, it's, it's about me now. It just kind of this. Uh, yeah. It, I, I, I think the, um, I, I think they were indicating that it's not like a, uh, deep philosophical libertarianism that's driving, yeah. you know, the conservative movement in Florida. It's, it's maybe a more shallow, like, you know, 
woo, F it kind of conservatism. Um, I would, you know, I would, throw the flag. I would agree with that wholeheartedly. I, uh, I love, I love the term YOLO conservatism and I will, uh, I'm going to use it at least 18 times today. I can, I can guarantee you well, that. One, 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 going back to Nevada real quick. I, I think the, the, the key issue there is a lot of, there are a lot of issues, but one of the big issues there is pent up hostility, uh, toward the current governor, uh, because Nevada being a tourist convention town, I mean, sorry, Vegas being a tourist convention town, the COVID shutdowns and the backlash for how long those hotels and casinos were empty and so forth, that some of the usual, you know, constituencies that the, 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 the governor has had good relationships with are super bitter. Uh, and so that, that is an issue. If it's, not, if it's not the top issue, it's certainly right at the top of the pile. Just that kind of hangover from COVID backlash for shutdowns and what it did to the, to the industry out in Vegas and, and Reno and other places. So super interesting to be out there. It's, it's fun to be in a, in a key state at this point in time in an election cycle. We, we're used to it in Florida, uh, even though it's becoming less of a key state, but it's, uh, it's quite an experience to go to when you're, when your particular state like Georgia is kind of on the national hot seat. So as always, uh, we will keep tabs on election developments up until, up until November. And, um, and until next week, stay safe, stay informed, and we'll talk to you then.